In October 1967, 26-year-old Mary Sevier set off from Sussex in England to ride to India on a motorcycle. The bike she had chosen for her trip was a 1966 BSA Bantam with a single-cylinder 175cc two-stroke engine. She reached India and kept going all the way around the world. The journey would take her nine years, making her the first British woman to circumnavigate the world alone on a motorcycle. My name is Martin Moore, and I'm a journalist and filmmaker. In November 2021, I sat down with Mary and asked her to tell her story. Episode 5, Fending Off Unwanted Amorous Approaches in the Outback. The captain would not come down to meals, which he should have done. And the first officer, the, the officers used to fight over who was going to be at the table because these two actually were very, very rude. They really were quite impossible. It was awful. <clears throat> anyway, they got off at the first port of call, which I'm not sure whether it was Brisbane. I think it was Brisbane. And then it went Brisbane, Sydney, down to Melbourne and I was getting off in Melbourne because uh, I was going to stay with uh, girlfriends who I'd shared a flat with in, in, in London um, years earlier. But I had met them in 1965 when I was on my way back hitchhiking from Israel um, and I was working in a youth hostel in Austria and they were coming down, three of them were coming down the road with their rucksacks looking like hitchhikers and I was going to the post office in the nearest village in, in the Austrian Tyrol and I could hear them and I knew they were Australian. They were saying, Oi, here comes an Austrian girl. Who speaks the best German? We've got to ask her where the youth hostel is. <laughs> because I was curled up laughing. So then one of them comes out with, Wo ist der Jugendhandbergen? <laughs> I said, Do you speak English? <laughs> And then, of course, I said I was English and I was working in the guest house and the youth hostel down the road. And no, if they continued, that's where it was. And I was staying there, so I might see them later. Anyway, they only came for one night and they ended up staying a whole week. One of them, I got her a job as a nanny in Kitzbühel. And this morning, uh, I was communicating with, with the one who is still alive. Actually, no, two of them are still alive. One died. Um, but one who's very much alive and she's in Melbourne and I was... I was sending her a message on Facebook to say that I was going to be <laughs> interviewed today. <laughs> uh, so I've remained friends with them and I have seen them over the years. And that particular one, Sue, came to visit me in Afghanistan uh, when I was there. <clears throat> uh, so I arrived in Melbourne to be greeted by all my friends, which was absolutely marvellous. And then I went to the local newspaper, well, the national newspaper, Melbourne Herald, which owned all the newspapers around the country and said could I write articles for them so that I could fill up my tank, bike tank. No, for some reason they wouldn't let me write articles. I, I, I really don't know why. Um, it wouldn't cost them very much. But wherever I went they would have somebody to interview me. So I said, yep, yeah, okay, fine. And I said, actually what I really want is I would like some publicity for when I go from Perth to Darwin because 
I knew it was going to be very isolated and I wouldn't see very many people. And if something happened to the bike, it broke down, I could be stuck out there. It was the height of the summer. It was a crazy time. And before I left, the editor of the Northern Territory, uh, he had lived in uh, Darwin for many years. And he said, uh, when Mary comes in, tell her to come and see me. Somebody's got to talk her out of this. She's going to kill herself. So I went in and he sat there behind his desk and we were having tea or coffee. And he said, do you really realize what you're going to do? So I said, yes. I said, I've been from in England out to India. I've hit dirt roads. I've been in isolated places. I've hit hot. I've hit cold. Um, I've been down through black Africa. Um, at least here you speak a form of English, so I should be able to communicate. And he said, it's going to be 40 degrees and you're going from Darwin down to Alice Springs. He said, you can have no idea how hot that is going to be. So I said, have you done it on a motorbike? No. What have you done it in? A car? Yes. So I said, you've been sitting in a tin box in 40 degrees. Well, put like that, yes, I suppose so. So I said, when you're on a motorbike, however hot the air is, it doesn't feel that hot. It's only when you stop, depending on how many clothes you've got on to protect you if you fall off on dirt roads, um, that's when you're going to really realise the heat. But I said otherwise, no. He said, you are never going to make it round. He said, you will either be killed through dehydration or being stuck somewhere and nobody finds you or you will give up. So I said, okay, fine, no, no. If I make it, I'll come back and see you. You won't make it. So I said, okay, fine, no, right. So off I trot. And <clears throat> of course, the first place that I was going to hit that was in those days fairly notorious was the Nullarbor Plain, which is, I don't know how many miles, a long, a long way, <laughs> days. <laughs> and everybody does it on a train. Well, not everybody, because <laughs> there are a lot of motorcyclists on Facebook who've done it now. Um, and I was told it was going to be very hot because it was the summertime. And I got to where there was quite a long section still of dirt road and it started to rain. So there was no dust. It wasn't mud because it hadn't rained hard enough. I had to get out quite a lot of my clothing because it was freezing cold. I had to put on my Halle Hansen outfit so I didn't get wet. So it lightened the load on my bike and I got through. And eventually I arrived in, in Perth and the newspapers there uh, interviewed me. Um, I think probably everywhere I was on television and I probably was on the radio as well. And certainly one, actually the main saving grace in Australia was when I was in Adelaide, after Melbourne, I went to Adelaide before I crossed the Nullarbor. <clears throat> I went to a motorcycle shop who must have been the agent for British bikes. And they put sleeves 
I don't know what they do nowadays. They put a sleeve, like an insulating sleeve, <coughs> excuse me, inside the tyre. And as I found out, once I got over onto the East Coast and I had the tyres removed, the thorns had gone, all thorns and all sorts of, um, what do you call it, um, well, any form of anything sharp, had gone through the tyre, but it hadn't penetrated this, 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 this sleeve. But otherwise, if I hadn't had the sleeve in, I would have had flat tyres the whole time. So it was absolutely brilliant, really was brilliant. Um, and as I say, I don't know what they do now. Um, so much, so much of supervising animals now, it's done by drones, I gather, uh, in Australia because of the vast distances, uh, aeroplanes. Um, I don't think too many people actually ride motorcycles around herding the, 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 the animals. It's all terribly, terribly modernized. Um, so I got to Perth, and then from Perth, uh, it was put out on the news that Mary Motorcycle was going to go from Perth to Darwin, and it was about 3,000 miles. And each town would have, oh, I don't know, seven or eight miles of, of tarred road. Um, but otherwise, it was a sand track and sometimes it was really bad. It was corrugated. I'd hit corrugation before, but this, this, this corrugation was, oh, if you didn't have your teeth, if they weren't yours, <laughs> you put them in a glass at night time, you would have had to have taken them out because you just went da 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 da, -da. Oh, And then when you got to a, a decent piece, you thought, oh, thank God for that. But then the next lot of corrugation would come up. And when I got really up to the Northwest, about halfway, it then got to the stage where I would have to report in to a police post in the morning and say, I'm going to be at the next police post, which might be about 180 kilometers at six o'clock tonight. And the idea was that if I hadn't arrived, they would send somebody out to look for me. They really were fantastic about it. And when I left in the morning, probably a vehicle would come behind me and they'd stop and say, everything okay? Yep, fine. And when they got to the next police post, they then told the police post where they'd seen me, they'd spoken to me, and that I was going okay. And then I would see probably two vehicles coming towards me. One of them would be probably a, a ute uh, of some sort, and the other would be what they call these road trains, and you would hear them coming. You would see them, but you would hear them coming down because you stopped the bike, obviously. It was utter silence. Um, and they would, they would see me, but they would, I found out later, they were all looking out for me. Uh, there was a point system. When I got to Darwin, I was told about it. <laughs> You've got a point for stopping and talking to me. You've got a point if you could help me. And so the points mounted up. And then, of course, the final point was, well, <laughs> you're going to guess a female on her own. <laughs> And late, late, later on, <laughs> that achievement was almost made. <laughs> um, so it, it, I didn't realise to what extent people were aware that I was there. I knew that they knew I was there because of the publicity, uh, but I didn't realise just to what extent. Um, 
I certainly wasn't, wasn't uh, feel, feeling uh, safe about it or secure, uh, but I did realise that <laughs> if something happened to me, they, they might actually find me before I passed out. Anyway, the first thing that happened was I must have stopped the bike for a pee and I tried to get it to start again. And it, I got it started, but it wouldn't move. So I damn nearly took that bike to pieces. I tried everything. And I just could not get it to go, but I got the spark and I thought, well, you know, what else can be wrong? What had happened was the points had slipped. I'd had new points put, put in, in Perth, but I was quite, I mean, it was probably, probably a thousand miles up the road from Perth. So you'd thought, but I suppose with all the jogging on the bike, on the corrugation, they must have slipped somehow. But because I got a spark, as far as I was concerned, and you only learn from experience, and suddenly two headlights came along the road. But just before that, because it was getting dark, I could see lights, a lot of lights, way across the, the scrub. Uh, but they, they put out lots and lots of uh, literature on going around the country. Well, they did in those days. Uh, and it said, if you see lights, don't go towards them. Because of the clear air, they could be 40, 50 miles away. Stay where you are. You must stay on the road because that is where people will find you. So I thought, right, well, if I can see their lights, if I light a fire, they'll see my fire. And they'll know it's the road, and they may or may not have heard on the news that maybe it's Mary Motorcycle. Um, so I started collecting lots of sort of dried scrub, and I got my matches out, and then suddenly I saw two lights coming towards me. It was a Land Rover <coughs> being driven by a man, an empty Land Rover. And he knew who I was. And he said, I'll take you to the next police post but you leave your bike here. So I said, no. You tell the police post where I am, because they are expecting me to check in, and I'll stay here with the bike. I do not leave my bike. Well, I can't take your bike. So I said, I've picked my bike up with my sister and put it into the back of a van. And you're stronger than my sister. So I reckon we could get it into the back of your Land Rover if you didn't mind. Well, he really didn't have any choice, poor man. I felt sorry for him. So we got it into the back of the Land Rover. <clears throat> and of course, I, was, I didn't have any water and I didn't have any food. And I sat in the passenger seat and my elbow was resting on an, what they call an esky, an ice cool chest. And it had melting ice in it. And as a matter of principle, I would not ask him for a drink. I suppose it was admitting how foolish I was that I didn't have any food or water. But I found somebody else who had the same experience. He'd been hitchhiking and he didn't have any food or water. And he got picked up and he said exactly the same thing. There were all these cans of beer floating around in, in melting ice and he refused to ask. 
because it showed that he was actually dying of thirst. And I said, thank God I've met you because I thought it was me. <laughs> anyway, eventually when the man got out to have a pee, I just opened up the, 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 the esky and I just drank. It was absolutely filthy, absolutely filthy, but I didn't care. I just, I just scooped up lots and lots of water. And then we arrived at the police post and I got out and as I got out, the policeman came out of his, his office or house, wherever we were, the peace post anyway. Um, and he said, Mary, where's your motorbike? So I said, how do you know who I am? He said, well, your description. He said, you're six foot tall and you're female and you're speaking English. He said, where's your motorbike? And he said, we were expecting you. So I said, the motorbike's in the back of the Land Rover. I said, uh, I can't get it to go. And this very kind man came along and we put the bike in the back of the Land Rover. And I said, he's offering to, he's going back to where he lives. And I think it was Hall's Creek. Um, I said, I think we're going to be driving through the night. And I said, um, I'm not very happy about it. He's, he's a bit odd. Um, I'm not quite sure what to do. And he said, well, you can't get your bike fixed here because there isn't any mechanic. He said, I'll go and have a word with him. So he went and had a word with him and he came back. He said, he said, I understand what you're saying, Mary. But he said, no, you'll be okay. So I said, are you sure? He said, yes. So we went on and we got to the town where he lived and we took the motorbike out. We got to a petrol station and the, there the boys knew who I was. And they said, uh, Where's your motorbike? So I said, it's in the back of the Land Rover. I said, it's broken down. I, I couldn't get it to go. So they took it out and he just disappeared off in the Land Rover. And I said, I didn't have a chance to say goodbye or thank you. And they said, uh, how did he behave towards you? So I said, what do you mean? Well, he lives on his own. He's become a hermit. His wife walked out on him and he doesn't speak to women. He hates women. So I said, oh, that's probably why he didn't want to help me, because I said originally he didn't really want to help me at all, but I think he knew who I was. And they said, oh, that's really, really extraordinary. So I said, well, he, he must have saved my life, because I didn't have any, any, any uh, liquid on me, and the police weren't going to come out until the following day. If I hadn't turned up, they weren't coming out till the following day, by which time I, mean, I, I was beginning to actually get quite delirious. I knew that. Um, I had this idea that when the night fell, there would be dew on the stones. <laughs> I can remember it now. I could lick the dew off the stones and that would give me some moisture. I mean, it was crazy, but that's what happens. You're, you're, you're hallucinating. Um, no, not funny at all, but no, he, he must have saved my life. He really must have done. So then I got the bike fixed and of course they found out it was just the points that had slipped absolutely crazy. Then a cyclone came across and hit the road. So there was sand up to my knees. So I rode the bike along the side of the road, um, well, track. And then I got to a truck, a tra long trailer, huge long trailer. And there was a man sitting underneath it and he'd got a radio going and got a picnic. So uh, I left the bike up on the top and he said, come on down. He knew who I was, and so I got, um, uh, when did that happen? No, by that time, I think I'd got a water bottle. Yeah, I was okay, yeah. Um, and he, his vehicle had got stuck because of the sand coming up past the axle. He couldn't move. 
And so we were sitting there talking away and it was in the shade underneath. It was pretty hot. And then along came a ute, as they call it. And I can't remember how many men were in it. There must have been one, two, three. Must have been about five men in this ute. And the foreman came through and he looked at, uh, he, he had to look around to see what had happened to the vehicle, which was part of his team. Uh, and then he came underneath and he said to the, to the driver, he said, um, you know full well you're not allowed to pick up hitchhikers. What are you doing? So the driver said, haven't got a hitchhiker. Well, who's this? Don't you know who she is? She's not a hitchhiker. It's Mary Motorcycle. She's got a motorbike. Well, where's her motorbike? Well, it's up on the top there because she can't ride through the road. And she's come down here to join me. Oh. So, uh, they, I think they put the motorbike in the back of the ute and me, and we all went off, we left the truck and, and the driver who was sitting underneath packed up his gear and we all went off and they were all going on about this air-conditioned mobile home that was going to be up the road. Um, we got there and there were no windows, there was nothing, it was just a shell because it had been hit by the cyclone. Mosquitoes, oh it was absolutely terrible, beds soaking wet, and I think it must have slept all of them. I don't think there were two. Um, somewhere there is a pic. I have got a slide of, of, of it. Anyway, the foreman decided, because he'd saved me, he'd have his wicked way with me. So he sent all the others off to, I don't know what to do, prepare a meal somewhere, I suppose, because we did have a meal. And he then grabbed me inside this mobile home, put his arms round me, and he was as tall as me, but there was three of me to one of him. He was Italian, or of Italian stock. And I thought, oh God, don't fancy my chances here at all. And I thought, I've got to do some really fast thinking, otherwise I'm in trouble. The Merry Motorcycle Podcast is the unedited audio track from a film about Mary Sevier made by Martin Moore and produced by Saul Jevons. Listen to episode 6 now 